When a person is under the influence of the Spirit, Paul says, he or she sees those who are over him or her in authority as exercising an authority given by God. And because they have a heart that wants to submit to God, submit to Christ, they submit to those who were over them in authority. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his series with part 10 of The Holy Spirit's Influence. Why is submission so important to God, and why is it one of the main effects of being under the influence of the Spirit? How do you best demonstrate your submission to God? And are there any limits or boundaries concerning submission to human authorities? How far should your submission go? Well, we're concluding our series in Ephesians 5 with a look at the third effect of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a heart of submission. And as you'll discover today, not only are there things you should not submit to, there are two key biblical exceptions to submission. Let's open our Bibles and join Tom Pennington now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Look at verse 21. You have the word, be subject. It's there in the, in the English and the Greek. But notice in verse 22, it says wives, and then the word be subject is in italics in our New American Standard Bible. That's because the words don't appear in the Greek text. Paul borrows the idea from verse 21. He doesn't even repeat the verb in verse 22. So it's clear then that Paul intends that the wives' response to their husbands be an example of the kind of submission he's talking about. In fact, all of the examples of submission that follow verse 21 are talking about submitting to people in positions of authority. Wives to husbands in verses 22 down through verse 33, children to parents in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and slaves to masters in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. While those in authority, those in leadership, are told in these passages to be kind, to be considerate, to be understanding, to be loving, to be self-sacrificial, what they are never told to do is submit to those over whom they exercise that authority. The third reason it has to be, I think, submission to authority is the expression to one another doesn't always mean all Christians to every other Christian. It often does mean that. We talk about the one another's in the New Testament. It means you're to love me and I'm to love you and we're all to do that reciprocally. And so I think that leads us to think, well, maybe it means that here. But it doesn't always mean every Christian to every other Christian or every person to every other person. I'll, I'll choose a real obvious example. In Revelation 6-4, you don't need to turn there, but in Revelation 6-4, you have the tribulation period. And this is what's said about the tribulation period. It was granted to take peace from the earth and that men, listen, would slay one another. Now think about that for a moment. That doesn't mean that at the exact same time, everybody is killing everybody else. It means some people are killing others. And so here, that's what you have. When it says, submit yourselves to one another, there are people submitting themselves to others. And then he goes on to explain who those people are. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. So, kind of summing all that up, in Ephesians 5.21, we are told to voluntarily submit ourselves 
to all God-ordained authorities, human authorities. That's true in marriage, that's true in family, that's true in work or society, in government, and in the church. Now, I've just sort of answered the question, but what are these primary human authorities? Well, government is an obvious one. All city, state, and federal officials. First Peter makes this very clear. First Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves, there's our word, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And then he goes on to list all these governmental offices. Kings, their officers sent out, etc. He's talking about all political, civil, judicial, governmental authority. It includes, in our case, the president, the Congress, the state legislature, governor, mayor, city council, judges, police, and all the representatives that include those who write the codes for buildings, even those who work for the IRS. I hate to tell you that. It includes the authority of government. It includes the authority of church. In Hebrews, we're told to obey and submit to those who are who lead in the church, of course, in the authority of the Scripture. It includes marriage, wives to husbands, as we'll see as we work our way through this passage. It includes home and family, children to parents. It includes our work. In chapter 6, he talks about slaves and masters, or servants and masters. In our context, that would be employer and the authorities that represent them. Now, the key question here is why. Why are we to submit to human authority. Why does he emphasize that here when he talks about the influence of the Spirit and not submission to God? Well, think about it for a moment. Let's take loving God. We're supposed to love God. How does the Bible say that we most clearly demonstrate our love for God? By loving one another. So how then do we best demonstrate our submission to God? By submitting to the authorities he's put in place. Show me a Christian who struggles submitting to duly constituted authorities in his life or her life, and I'll show you a Christian who struggles submitting his or her will to God and his word. You show me a person who has an eager, glad, willing, from the heart desire to submit to human authority, and I'll show you a Christian who also has a submissive heart to God. They go together, and so it reflects the reality of our submission to God. Now that brings us to a fourth question. What are the limits of submission? What are the boundaries of submission? Where does it stop? How far does our submission to authorities go? What is the extent of submission to human authorities? Well, let me show this to you here with the authorities he's, he's going to walk through in this passage. Look at Ephesians five twenty four. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in what? In what? I didn't hear you yet. In everything. I didn't make that up, okay? That isn't, that isn't me. That's Paul. That's ultimately the Lord. What about children? Well, keep your finger here in Ephesians and turn to the parallel passage in Colossians, written at the same time from the same prison cell. Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in what? all things. What about slaves, workers? Verse 22, slaves in what? In all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Now folks, 
There's not much way to misunderstand in everything, in all things, and in all things. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? Now, it's important that I qualify it because the Bible qualifies it. Our submission to authority is not unconditional as it is to God and his authority. There are two clear biblical exceptions for submitting to human authority. When you do not, you should not submit. Number one, exception number one, is when that authority commands you to do what God forbids. When that authority commands you to do what God forbids, and exception number two is when that authority forbids you from doing what God commands. Let me say that again. The two exceptions are when God tells you what to do and the human authority commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you from doing what God commands. Really, it's just one exception. When the commands of that human authority run contrary, not to your own wishes and desires, but to the revealed word of God. How do we know that? Turn with me to Acts chapter four, because twice in the early chapters of Acts, the apostles run up against the authority of the government in Israel. And they teach us how we ought to respond when governmental authority and God's authority, when any human authority and God's authority conflict. Look at Acts 4 and verse 18. The, the council summons the, the apostles and commanded them not to speak or to teach it all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. What does that assume? It's not right. It's not right to listen to you even though you're a human authority over us because what you're telling us to do runs contrary to what God tells us to do. Now, here he hints at it in chapter five. They make it crystal clear. Look over in chapter five. And notice verse 27, they bring them in again. You know, this isn't working real well. They bring them in again, they stood before the council, the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders. Didn't we tell you not to do this, not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? In other words, you're not listening to our authority. And what does Peter say? Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. When human authority contradicts obedience to God, we have to choose to obey God and take the consequences for it. That's the exception. Now, I want you to think about the authorities in your life. Think about for a moment the authorities. We all are under the government. Some of you are wives under husbands. Some of you are children under parents. You're under elders here in the church. Just think about the authorities that God has placed in your life, in the workplace, your boss. Do you voluntarily order yourself under them? Do you intentionally, gladly yield your will because you recognize their rightful authority in your life, that God has put together this order, this system of authority and submission, and you yield your will to them. Can you honestly say that you do that, as we've seen here in this text, in everything except 
when the word of God would be violated. That's the standard for submission. Now, a fifth question we need to ask quickly is, what is the motivation to submission? Go back to chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 21. What is the motivation to submission? He says, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because in the Old Testament, fear of God was a motivation to right living. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here, Paul tells us to submit to human authority out of our fear for Jesus Christ. Now, why should we fear Jesus Christ? Well, look back in verse 20. Because he's our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we looked at that word last week. Kurios is the Greek word. It means master. He's our master. We are his slaves. He's our sovereign. We are his subjects. And therefore, because we fear the ultimate authority in our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, we submit ourselves to the under-authorities he's put in our lives. That's the point this passage is making. All Christians are subject under his authority, and therefore, we respond to those he places over us. Let me show you how this idea just permeates this passage. Look at chapter 5, verse 24. The church, that's all of us, by the way, every believer, is subject to Christ. We submit to Him. Verse 1 of chapter 6, children are to obey their parents in the Lord or under the control or domination of the kurios over both parents and children. Verse 4, fathers are to be careful in how they use their authority because both they and their children are under one kurios, one Lord. Verse 5, slaves are to serve as to Christ with fear and trembling. Verse 6 says we are slaves of Christ. Verse 7, you're to render service as to the kurios, the master, yours and mine. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the kurios, whether slave or free. And verse 9, Masters, be careful, don't threaten, knowing that you have a, and the word master here is the word kurios, both their kurios and your kurios is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. This idea dominates this passage. We are to have a healthy fear of those who are over us in authority because we fear our mutual kurios, the one who's over us all. Now, how does this healthy fear of our kurios express itself? Well, as you work your way through this passage, it expresses itself in a couple of ways. First of all, to those who are under authority, if you're under somebody's authority, you are to submit to that authority as if that authority were Jesus Christ. This is clear. Look at verse 22. Wives are to submit themselves to husbands as to the Lord. I've already shown you chapter 6, verse 1. Children to parents in the Lord, or under the authority of the kurios. Chapter 6, verse 5, slaves to masters, as to Christ. Now folks, I want you to just apply this very practically. Think about the people who are over you in authority. How would you respond if it wasn't that sinful person, but it was Jesus Christ? How would you respond to your government if Jesus Christ were the President of the United States? How would you respond 
to the elder in this church if the elder were Jesus Christ? How would you respond, ladies, if Jesus Christ were your husband? How would you respond, kids, to your parents if Jesus Christ were your father? How would you respond if Jesus Christ were your boss? That's the standard. We are to respond to those in authority as if they were Christ and yield our will to them as we would if Jesus Christ were in that position. The exception being, of course, that they're sinful human beings and they will sometimes ask us to do things that are contrary to God's revealed will. It stops there. There's another implication of this healthy fear of our curios. Not only for those who are under authority, we're to serve as if our authorities were Christ, but for those in authority, those who have a position of authority, they are to use that authority as Christ would use that authority, with the same love and self-sacrifice that's demonstrated here in this chapter. Note the pattern in all three authority relationships here and in Colossians. In all three, Paul reminds those in authority to remember that they too are under authority. They're in a position of authority, but they're also under Christ's authority. In Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 24, husbands are under the authority of Christ, the head of the church, and they better be careful to carry out authority in their homes toward their wives as Christ would. The same loving, sacrificial way that he responds to the church, husbands are to respond to their wives. In chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, yes, you have authority, but you're to respond to your children as Jesus Christ would if he were the head of your home. You're to use that authority as he would, not some dictatorial, authoritative, angry, harsh leadership. You're to be Christ to that one under your authority. In verse 9, if you're in charge of others in the workplace, you're to remember you have the same master. Treat them as your mutual master would treat that employee. So if you're in authority, don't abuse that position. As one writer says, authority is not a synonym for tyranny. We're not to use that authority selfishly. Listen, nothing in biblical submission suggests that it's right to abuse authority, to encourage the subjugation of women, or to take advantage of workers for financial profit, or to brutalize children or to condone the abuses and inhumanities of the slave trade. None of that is allowed for in this text. As John Stott writes, nothing in the paragraphs we are about to study is inconsistent with the true liberation of human beings from all humiliation, exploitation, and oppression. On the contrary, to whom do women, children, and workers chiefly owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ? It is Jesus who treated women with courtesy and honor in an age in which they were despised. It is Jesus Christ who said, let the little children come to me in a period of history in which unwanted babies were consigned to the local rubbish heap and abandoned in the forum for anybody to pick up and rear for slavery or prostitution. And it was Jesus who taught the dignity of manual labor by working himself as a carpenter. We must not, Stott says, interpret what Paul writes to wives, children, and servants about submission in a way which contradicts these fundamental attitudes of Jesus Christ. One final question, and we'll be done. Why is there authority in submission? Why is there this system? Why did God even bother to establish such a system? 
Well, we could suggest a number of possibilities that would be right to some degree. We could say this whole system of authority and submission on the human level is to help curb sin. Because if one authority, like the parents, for example, don't exercise that authority and help their children learn self-restraint, there's always the government to punish evildoers. So there's a curb on human sinfulness. There's also, uh, we could say, it, it exists to structure and order the life of the planet. God is a God of order. And he simply wanted order among humans as well. We could say that it exists to teach us how to submit to God. If we learn how to submit to authority, we learn how to submit to God. And, and all of those things are true. But ultimately, you have to ask yourself, what is it ultimately a reflection of? When did this authority submission structure begin? Did it begin in Genesis 9 when God established human government after Noah got off the boat? Did it begin back in the garden when God gave Eve to Adam and their authority and submission began? Or did it begin before he created the world with the creation of the angels when he created that hierarchy within the angelic system? No, it didn't start in any of those places. Listen, submission and authority started in eternity past when there was nobody but God within the triune person of the Godhead. In the New Testament, if I had time, I would take you to several texts where it's very clear that eternally the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father, and the Son submits to the Father. He's eternally the Son, and the first person is eternally the Father. That implies that submission. And yet, there is equality. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are absolutely equal. And yet the Son eternally yields His will to the Father. You know what this says about submission? It doesn't make anybody a second-class citizen. Listen, if you think submission to authority demeans you, you better get in line to argue with Jesus Christ, who has for eternity submitted His will to the Father, with whom He is absolutely equal. Look at the life of our, uh, earthly life of our Lord. In Luke 2, verse 51, It says he went down with his parents, came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection. There's our word, to them. Jesus is the perfect model of submission. In this life and in eternity past and forever, he has submitted his will to his Father. You remember what he said in the garden? Father, not my will, but yours be done. He said, I didn't come on my own initiative. I came because of the one who sent me. And here's the good news. We have violated every authority submission structure in our lives. Not one of us has perfectly honored and obeyed the authorities God has put in our life because we're rebels. But the one who perfectly has submitted for all eternity and through his earthly life and will through all eternity, he died in our place to pay the debt for our acts of rebellion against authority. Listen, God has established this comprehensive system of authority and submission in his world. It is a reflection of his own character and his own person. When a person is under the influence of the Spirit, Paul says, he or she sees those who are over him or her in authority as exercising an authority given by God. And because they have a heart that wants to submit to God, submit to Christ, they submit to those who were over them in authority. May God give us submissive hearts to our Lord and to those whom he places over us.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, The Holy Spirit's Influence. Tom will begin a new series for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. You know, it's been my joy over the last number of days to study this passage together with you. But I hope you haven't missed the big picture as we've looked at the details. The big picture of Ephesians 5 is that the Holy Spirit has filled us with the Word of God. He's permeated our minds and hearts with the Scripture. And as we are filled by the Spirit with the Word of God, there are significant and powerful changes that result in us. And that's what we've examined together. There'll be a love for God-centered music. There will be a pattern of a thankfulness and a thankful heart. And there will be willing submission to those in human authority, reflecting our submission to God's authority. So I hope you've evaluated yourself as, as I've had to myself in looking at this text and considering the role of the Spirit in our lives. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.